0: You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This week on the University Series, we are speaking with the University of Utah and Dr. Rob O'Neill and Dr. Erin Fisher. So without further ado, the University of Utah. So today we are here talking with the University of Utah, and we're talking with Dr. Rob O'Neill and Dr. Erin Fisher. So thank you both and welcome.
1: Thanks for having us. Glad to be here.
0: And I'm gonna pass it right over to both of you for a general overview of the program.
1: So just to give a little bit of background, the program has been in existence since about 2012. Uh, I think we, we might be somewhat of a unique program. I'm not totally sure, because I don't have data on it, but uh, it's always been a joint enterprise between the departments of special education in the Department of Educational Psychology in the College of Ed at the University of Utah. So our verified course sequence includes coursework from both departments as part of the process. So um, just to give people maybe a little bit of an idea, um, we, we, we basically have sort of three groups of students who tend to go through the program So in special ed, we tend to have folks who are working as paraprofessionals or teachers in schools, and they wanna come back. They may have been certified, for example, at the bachelor's level, and they wanna come back and get a master's degree, and then also get their BCBA credentials. So um, those are school-based folks that we have in the program. Uh, We also have folks who work in private agencies in the the regional area, so they're looking to get their BCBA to continue to work in those kind of environments, doing typically some combination of in-home and center-based kinds of service provision. And then we've got folks in school psych uh, who are becoming school psychologists, Uh, either at the master's or doctoral level, who are also part of the program. And so uh, folks can either do a master's degree or a doctoral degree in either department and also incorporate the BCBA as part of that process. So that's kind of a general explanation of the program and how it's structured, so to speak.
2: Thanks, Rob. Yeah, and I think one of the really exciting parts of our program is that we have this really intentional interdisciplinary training where we have folks who are in school psychology, who are in special education um, training to get their BCBAs together. And um, because of that, half of our courses, if not more, are really geared towards the application of behavior analysis in schools, which I think is really unique compared to other behavior analysis programs in the country um, where, of course, they'd have a clinical orientation. Um, I think ours are really trying to prepare students not only to be Uh, effective in clinical practice, but also in schools where I think we're seeing an increasing amount of behavior analysis and uh, behavior analytic practice.
1: And so as part of that, we have very strong collaborative relationships with local school districts, with local private agencies, with public agencies. So, for example, the uh, state division of services for people with disabilities and some of the, the service providers within, within that system have increasingly begun to incorporate behavior analysts uh, in, their, in their programs and so forth. So, uh, So for both clinical experience or supervised experience and also research opportunities, we have a really broad, I think that's one of our strengths is that we have, a very broad array of possible experiences for people. So whether it's classroom-based type things, uh, Aaron and his folks are very involved in also providing sort of uh, supplemental mental health services in school settings and so forth. And so uh, I think folks have the potential opportunity to get a lot of experience in different arenas if they wanted to pursue that, so. So we give them the chance to have a variety of uh, ways to kind of specialize or focus their interests and so forth. Well, and I mean,
0: you read my mind because my next question was gonna be, you know, who are the faculty and what are the research opportunities that the students have? So perfect timing.
1: Well, in special ed, uh, I'll talk and then Aaron can chime in. Um, I'm currently the only BCBA in our department. We are smack in the middle of hiring a new faculty member to be part of the BCBA program. So we're very excited about that to to have some more resources in that regard. Um, In special ed, I would say the the research focuses, again, tend to be focused on school-based applied topics. So particularly in areas like behavioral supports. Conducting functional behavioral assessments, implementing function-based interventions in in typical school settings. uh, Effective academic and instructional strategies, you know, are are something that we're often very concerned with. So that also tends to be a big research topic as well. So um, those are probably the main global sort of research areas within the Department of Special Ed.
2: And for the school site program, which is housed within the Department of Educational Psychology, we have uh, myself and then two other faculty who are behavior analysts who teach within the course sequence. Um, one is Dr. Keith Radley, um, who's a school psychology faculty, and then um, Dr. Julia Hood, who is the director of our undergraduate educational psychology major, um, which provides opportunities for undergraduate students to get their RBT uh, their first semester uh, while they're matriculating and then uh, ultimately uh, sit for the BC ABA. Um, or maybe say an extra year and uh, join Rob in the special education program to get their their PCBA and their master's degree. Um, and so we're we're excited about that because I think we have a pipeline that can help, and we have um, some faculty. But like Rob said, it's really exciting to be able to hire another faculty um, because we've historically had some really great behavior analysis folks here at the U. And uh, it's it's awesome to see the opportunity as far as some of the research that's coming out of educational psychology. Um, A lot of it um, is around school-based applications of uh, behavior analysis, particularly around things like social skills interventions, where Dr. Keith Radley has focused a lot of his work on the superhero social skills intervention, um, as well as other other work in that space. And then uh, through my lab, the UTech lab, we uh, do a ton of work around uh, technology integration to behavior mental health supports. And so a lot of it is around teleconsultation to support educators and parents, um, as well as some more direct service stuff. But Um, because we're, we're a program that has mental health and behavior. We also try to infuse a lot more acceptance and commitment uh, therapies um, to try to get some more kind of behaviorally infused therapeutic um, knowledge to our graduate students as well.
0: Well, that's really, really exciting just because, I mean, one to start off with getting into schools can be um, very hard in the first place. Uh, I, I've had personal experience with that. I just got lucky that I worked for a company that already had those kinds of partnerships, but um, just getting that type of experience is absolutely pertinent. And so many behavior analysts from, you know, my personal experience and from talking with others, very anecdotal, but they, you know, they come out of their master's program being really gung ho and which is great, but that doesn't always um, nicely shift into a school setting where it's a completely different environment that they have completely different histories, they have completely different ways of going about their day and their, and how they run things. And if you don't have that experience, it can be a really, really big adjustment. So even hearing that, you know, we have the undergrads, we also have them a pipeline into the master's program as well is really exciting. And that kind of makes me think that you may have some pretty good practicum sites and opportunities for some practical training as well. So what does that look like?
1: Aaron, you want to maybe talk about some of your school-based activities?
2: Yeah, you know, we I think Rob and I both agree. um, We we really uh, like to highlight the practicum experiences that we can offer. And it it really is based on the relationships we've been able to form with local school districts, but also the exceptional work that our graduate students go out and do in the schools. Um, And really what we found here in Utah is that there was there was a lot of interest in behavior analysis. There was a lot of interest in in being able to support that work, but not necessarily having the capacity of providers who could do it. And like you said, the capacity of folks who really knew how to navigate the bureaucracies of schools and and understand the the culture and climate. And so um, we have students who are funded uh, for their practicum and uh, they're able to uh, go out to schools 20 hours a week and receive a stipend as well as tuition benefits to um, to be able to come to school and to be able to learn but also get paid for their time. Um, and we think that's really important. We get our students uh, to hit the ground running um, right away uh, because I think one of the biggest things for me from a training perspective is, is getting them in the environments that they in, intend to work in so that they can socialize in those environments and understand just all the, the nuance to it. And so we find that's really helpful. And then we also are able to provide um, in-house supervision to our students in those practical experiences, which I know Rob and I have talked a lot, is, is really important because we think that's where the rubber really meets the road when it comes to all the great training. And if we can ensure really quality supervision, um, then we, we feel like we're really setting our students up uh, for some of those experiences in the schools. Um, and then the other practical experience that's related is we have an interdisciplinary pediatric feeding disorders clinic um, through the Huntsman Mental Health Institute um, and they have a program for individuals who are on the spectrum across the lifespan, and we've housed our clinic in there to help predominantly those clients but also folks around the state of Utah. And we have um, graduate students uh, do practicums to do uh, teleconsultation with parents for feeding interventions. And so they're able to get kind of this this good breadth of both school-based experiences, but maybe I, I hate to say traditional because through telehealth doesn't feel like traditional. but uh, you know maybe these more common clinical applications that also include um, contemporary training around things like telehealth, which I think when we talk to our practicum students, when they go out and get jobs, they always look back and feel really grateful for the telehealth training because many programs aren't really including that uh, very purposely. I mean, I think during the pandemic, they were sort of having to, um, but this has been a, a real skill set that I think our graduates can take in whatever capacities they work and, and really have some value added uh, with that knowledge that they have.
1: And I was thinking as Aaron was talking, I think one of the benefits of the population of of trainees that we serve is that they are in classes together and so it's a great opportunity for them to share experiences and share ideas so if somebody's working doing in-home based services and other people are in schools and other people are in other clinical settings um, it's really interesting to 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 be able to then talk about say a concept or a technique or something and say how would it apply in this context and how would it apply in that context? So, and they begin to learn about the different issues that crop up in different settings and so on and so forth. So, um, so they get a chance to talk about, you know this is what it would look like in the school setting. This is what it would look like in a home. This is how, what it might look like in a cl- clinic or center-based program or something. So. And I also just wanted to follow up on Aaron's discussion about the feeding clinic. So we we've had a pretty a very long standing collaboration. So I've been at the university since the late 90s, and so um, we've had a long collaboration with our Department of Psychiatry. Um, they have a couple clinical programs that focus around people with developmental disabilities and folks that are on the autism spectrum, and so we've been able to have a pretty strong influence over the years um, to move them in the direction of not only looking at some of the traditional things like medication management and so on and so forth, but also including a strong behavioral component in what they do. So they actually now have behavior analysts on staff in some of those programs. And so uh, they can do things like conduct assessments and develop uh, programmatic strategies for people and so on. So um, that's been a, a longstanding and And again, as Erin said, a great opportunity for students periodically as well.
0: Well, and I can imagine as well that the telehealth has a big impact, especially on, I know that from my personal experience, um, parts of Michigan get very rural. And it's very hard to get services. And I can just imagine how much having that specific training, because me personally, I only know of, I mean, a couple, like a couple people who are like specifically studying, you know, telehealth and really trying to improve on these methods. But I can just imagine how beneficial that will be to help expand like our service population and be able to, you know, get some of these individuals who may not have been able to access these services before.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I really see it as an equity issue. If, you know, we have to be able to get access to really high quality um, supervision and support and services, all the things. And I really try to to really make sure that's infused because I, I imagine in the next, you know, 10, 20 years, when we see programs being accredited, um, and we see that the kind of expectations we're going to have to have elements of telehealth included because this, we're just moving towards that direction, uh, not as a replacement, but as an augment. And we, we know that, I think, very much through, through the pandemic. Um, but, I, yeah, I'm excited to see more. And I, I hope that our graduates get a, a leg up uh, before all the other programs decide to also <laughs> include those things, um, because, because I, I know that they see the value as well as, as us as faculty who use it in, in some of the work we do as well.
0: And I'm also one question that I I mean, I ask this often, but I'm very much more interested to hear about it from both of your perspectives. I can just imagine what some of the classes look like in the program. So, I mean, what are some, you know, what are some of those classes and what can individuals expect when, you know, they're looking at University of Utah and these programs?
1: let me make some general comments. And then again, both of us can chime in on specifics as well. Uh, Another thing that I think is maybe kind of unique to our program, uh, again, I don't have data to support that. But um, uh, we do have some options built in to our course sequence so that folks can take. So in a given content area, for example, they, they might have the option of taking one of maybe three different courses to meet those requirements. And so again, depending on their interests and focus, whether it's school-based things or if they're very focused, for example, Aaron teaches a course related to autism and interventions and so forth. And so folks that want to maybe pursue a very specific focus on that, that's an option as part of the process. So uh, I think, we tend, and Aaron will chime in as well, um, I think we follow a pretty, for lack of a better word, behavioral skills training approach in a lot of the work we do in the classes. So there's certainly you know, pedagogical content and so forth that we're conveying to people, but um, we tend to have a pretty heavy focus on the practical skills and application and giving people opportunity to practice those skills, at least on a simulated role play level in a class and then they go out and so a lot of the assignments and related activities and again that's where the supervision comes into play. They have the opportunity to go out and implement and try out those things in the field and applied settings and so forth so. So I think we have a a good balance of kind of the content. Um, technical content and conceptual things and so forth, and then also a very applied or hands-on approach to sort of giving people opportunities to learn and practice the skills, both in a classroom, quote-unquote, context, as well as out in in the field and their supervised experiences.
2: Yeah, and I, I love how you said that, the behavioral skills training model. I mean, I really think that is really the, the overarching kind of piece that we're using. And I think the students get uh, you know a lot out of that. They really seem to report, they really enjoy the simulated training experiences. And I think as a program um, that's really trying to be innovative, I know we're always trying to think about how to infuse virtual training experiences. So I know that's something that we'll continuously try to be uh, integrating through like virtual reality type of simulations. Um, but our classrooms, you know, I think the sizes are, are relatively small. Um, they're interdisciplinary. So we have a lot of students who are, who are attending from different programs. Um, an example is my consultation and supervision class. We have behavior analyst uh, students. We have school psychology students, school counselors, clinical mental health counselors, counseling psychologists. So there's a lot of related mental health people who are learning about very similar things. Um, but the nice part, I think, about the courses is we get to also take the, the benefits like I, I'm all... I'm all in for competency-based behavior analytic supervision. And I think some of these other fields can also benefit from those things as well. And so it's, it's really nice to have those uh, really collaborative spaces where students can, can simulate and, and practice. And, you know, they might be working behavior analyst as one partner and a school counselor on the other. And it, it provides a, a different element um, than I think if we just had all the same students uh, like Rob was alluding to a little bit before as well. Um, and we have a really beautiful building on campus. Um, I feel like we have to plug that because you won't be able to see it, but um, it's less than 10 years um, old and it's uh, lots of big windows and open space. And we're always like shocked that a college of education has, uh, you know, has such great space, but it, it definitely helps, I think, uh, for, for the learning that goes on in the classroom and uh, it can make for just a really a nice collaborative environment. Oh, nice! Yeah, Rob just changed his virtual background <laughs> so that you could so at see the moment. outside. That is
0: nice and new. That is very nice and new. That's exciting. Well, I mean, that also brings up a question um, that some people may have when they hear Utah. I understand, you know, it's in Salt Lake City, but what what can people expect from Utah and Salt Lake City in general? Like what? What's going on there?
2: <laughs> it's such a great question. I think, you know, and I think for people who aren't from Utah, they, they probably don't really have an understanding of it, or maybe their understanding they have is like somewhat, somewhat limited. Um, Utah is a, I, I, maybe I'm biased. I think one of the most beautiful places, one of the be- most beautiful states. Uh, we have just such amazing natural beauty uh, across the whole state. If you're really interested in like outdoor activities, and national parks, you can ski, you can go hiking. Um, You could go swimming in places, but, you know, you just want to make sure which ones because like the Salt Lake is not really like a preferable swimming location. Um, And then as far as the people goes, I think that the Salt Lake City is an extremely diverse community. It's really rich with diversity. Uh, If you look at some of the local school districts, there's like over 160 languages spoken um, in some of our largest school districts in the city. I think as you get outside of the Salt Lake County um, the diversity sort of ends, drop, drops off some, and it becomes a little bit more homogenous. Um, but uh, people in Utah, Utahns are a, are a very friendly group of people. Uh, it's a very service-oriented community. And so there's a lot to help the, the, the community. Um, there's a real focus on education and, and mental health, which, you know, I think compared to other states, maybe isn't always the case. Um, it's sunny a lot here. Um, and although it may get cold, it's very dry. So it's not like uh, the East Coast, or even any other humid places in the Midwest. Um, and we do get four seasons. So it's it's really nice. And I, I grew up on the East Coast and did all my education in the South. And so it's a really nice place, I think, for people who, who want to be outside and take advantage of that lifestyle.
1: So I'm assuming the underlying question might have to do with socio-cultural issues and religious things and so forth. But um, so Salt Lake City is is a majority <clears throat> the majority of people in Salt Lake City are not members of the dominant religion. Um, as Aaron said, once you go outside the area, things change a bit, but um, so I think, as he said, the diversity um, is pretty awesome. We've got a very large Hispanic Latinx population that's growing very quickly uh, Asian and Pacific Islander population. Um, so again, there's, there's a great deal of diversity, much more than I think people, uh, are typically surprised when they hear about how diverse it is, given the sort of general impressions that people sometimes have. So, Uh, Just tons of cultural stuff. So we have, you know, museums on campus and in the community. We've got uh, lots of music venues. There's a very vibrant music scene in various levels. Uh, The pandemic obviously has been a problem, but um, we get most of the major, you know, music tours will come through Salt Lake on their way out to the West Coast or something like that. So we get all the big bands and then we also get a lot of middle middle level sort of bands as well. And so um, there's a lot of musical things. There's an opera, there's a ballet, there's theater, lots of uh, theater uh, uh, productions come through town as well. So Hamilton was in town a while back and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, and then of course the, the outdoor things as, as Aaron mentioned are just, you know, just about anywhere you live in the valley, you can drive for fifteen to twenty minutes at the most and be somewhere where you can have a nice hike, a great walk. You can drive well. Depends on the the ski areas are getting pretty uh, <laughs> pretty packed these days. So, um, but generally speaking, it's a much uh, they're they're in very close proximity. So it might be a thirty to sixty minute drive to get to a ski area. So. Um, so yeah, and then of course around the rest of the state, as Erin alluded to, there's just unparalleled opportunities for outdoor activities and so forth. So, um, so yeah, I, I I mean I was I moved here in 1994, and so I was living in Eugene, Oregon, which is an extremely liberal place, and so people were when I told them I was moving to Utah, you know, people were like. Really, <laughs> but um, like lots of university towns, you know, you, the university creates kind of a lot of positive impacts in terms of diversity and so on and so forth. And so, um, the politics can sometimes get a little uh, funky, but uh, you know, I think that's true around most of the country these days. <laughs> so, we're we're not the only ones, so to speak.
0: I mean, from my perspective, I've lived a few different places throughout the country now, and um, what I've noticed is that when you're getting to a bigger city, it's going to be pretty similar to the other bigger cities, as well, and you can yeah. kind of expect that same that same thing <laughs> with if you're at the big city in that state. So. Um, I lived in Detroit for years. Trust me, I hear it all. And (laughs) so I I get it. Uh, It's really exciting to hear. I haven't had the opportunity to visit Utah yet. So it's on my list, of course, you know, hopefully now that things are getting smidge back to semi normal, if that's what we want to call it. I don't know if we, even though we don't know what normal is anymore, but um, yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, Probably, you know, my biggest travel plans are this year conferences. So uh, finally in-person conferences again are going to be fun. Um, so hopefully I'll make it out there sometime. Um, let's well, see.
1: And, yeah. and in relation to that, I just might mention that within our, our College of Ed, uh, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but there was for quite a while, we were basically faculty wise, we were the most diverse college on campus. So, um, we, we have been able to, both within uh, Ed Psych particularly, and then other departments in the college, I mean, we have been able to recruit quite a diverse range of faculty. And so um, I think that speaks to the fact that once people get the chance to come visit and see what it's really like and so forth, Um, they're willing to, you know, come here and make, try to make a career here. So we have those uh, additional opportunities collaboratively within the college for folks who are interested, for example, in things like diversity and equity and inclusion and social justice kinds of activities. And so um, we have some really stellar faculty doing work in those areas, as well as their students. So
0: I mean, and you have a really you're surrounded by some really good areas to be doing a lot of this work in and so it's really exciting as well and I know we've covered faculty and research, we've covered practicum opportunities, we've covered the area student experiences. Um, one thing I always like to bring up just in case is the application and or interview process and I know it's usually pretty standard um, but some have you know their own intricacies to them Um, and with the last two years uh things got a little bit different so um what does that application and if there's an interview process look like
1: aaron do you want to go ahead and talk about ed psych yeah
2: so i think ed psych's a little bit different just because our students are already matriculating in the program as school typically school psychology um educational specialists or PhD students. And so um, the way that those students would pursue the BCBA is once they're in the program their first year, um, they would declare their interest in pursuing the BCBA credential. And then essentially we correspond with the folks who are in the special education department just to let them know about the interest. And then those students are able to join those coursework and receive supervision. So it's it's pretty much like a a really easy process, uh, at least for the students who are already matriculating Um, through ed psych, um, but we've, we've had a pretty good uh, turnout. I would say about 80% of our cohorts um, pursue the BCBA, um, which is really important to us because we want to make sure students not only come out as school psychologists, but have the BCBA as well.
1: And Aaron, for your, for your doc program though, you, you guys do interviews, don't you? Yeah,
2: sorry. I I skipped the important part about interviews. We do interview uh, everyone for those positions. um, And so there's an application that's typically due early in December Um, typically around December 15th, and uh, they can apply for the PhD and EDS. After uh, about a month and a half after we kind of reviewed all the applications in in about early February, uh, we do, um, we've been doing virtual interviews. Uh, We historically had done on-site, but uh, we've been doing virtual for the past two or three years. And and then those students are able to uh, be offered admission if they are eligible after the interview process. And we typically take cohorts of about anywhere from 10 to 15 per year, just depending on um, faculty who have course releases or on sabbatical or on leave, uh, just so that we can meet the current needs.
0: Well, and I think it also speaks to the program that you have so many that want to stay. That's that something.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I think what's unique about this, these are students who are like at the graduate level already, but they want to tack on the BCBA extra. So they're already here for the school psych, you know, because the ed psych undergrad program is relatively new, we haven't been able to graduate like a cohort to go into the pipeline. But uh, we'll have, I think, 17 students in that undergrad major next year. And so it'll be really interesting to see from that cohort, who ends up matriculating to school psych, or of course, even to the master's in ABA, which would be like a, a, a great alternative for, for many of the students who are pursuing that as an undergrad major.
1: And in, in special ed, it's a little different on the, so on the master's level, it's a pretty straightforward uh, online application with the usual stuff, um, transcripts, letters, and so on. And, and then the, the admissions committee will review those. Um, we've been targeting to admit about 15 folks a year, maximum just capacity wise. And we so we do three admission cycles per year. Um, so folks have multiple opportunities and because sometimes we have more applicants than we can accept uh, that's helpful because people might apply one time and not get in just because of space reasons and then they can reapply uh, another time and so if the if the numbers the numbers tend to fluctuate a bit so folks might have multiple opportunities to be accepted and then on the doctoral level, it's more uh, intensive process. So they would do an online application, but typically we, before we even encourage people to apply, we would conduct some interviews with them first. So typically students would talk with at least two faculty members from the department. And we would mainly because we're concerned about making sure that people's interests will match up with the expertise of folks on the faculty. and so. So we don't admit a doctoral student unless there's somebody on the faculty who's willing to serve as their at least as their their initial advisor as part of the process and so and just to mention before I forget as well so I've got my list on the screen over here Um, (laughs) we've been pretty successful at getting personnel preparation funding grants uh, uh, funded grants from the feds and so forth and so that's been able to fund both master's and doctoral level students at different times. Um, that that's always a uh, you know hit and miss kind of a game. So at any given time, we may or may not have a lot of that type of funding available for students. But we try to we keep sort of pressing the bar and hoping that we can kind of keep some of that that money coming in as part of the process. And so. We've also been very in special ed, um, we've been able to get a fair number of grants. So folks who are interested in getting their teacher licensure as well as the BCBA, um, there's a pot of money that our state has that they will deliver to basically uh, support folks who wanna go on and get their license, teacher license in various areas. we're a pretty unique department in that we offer something like uh, I can't remember if it's seven or eight different licensure programs so we kind of cover the gamut from severe mild moderate early childhood um, visual impairments deaf and hard of hearing deaf blind and so on and so forth so um, we've been pretty successful and some of these have been in collaboration with ed psych uh, getting again personnel prep grants to be able to cover things like tuition for folks who wanna get that teacher licensure, but they may also tack on, as Erin said, tack on the BCBA part as well as part of the process. So so we have a pretty good track record of being able to wrestle up support for students in various ways.
0: Well, and I love hearing, you know, just about all of the different um, types of, you know, the specializations and the credentials that your students can get. Because that is one thing with the students that I supervise, I tell them, I say, hey, do these trainings while you're in school, they're going to be cheaper while you're students. And I understand that they're, you know, they're different fields, (laughs) but, um, but still being able to get, you know, these specializations, these in, in multiple different areas or these different trainings, that opens up your job market so significantly that it's, it's only going to help you down the line and maybe more work now. And that's understandable, but down the line, it could be so beneficial.
1: And I will add another brag onto that as well. So our, our folks, um, I literally can't think of anybody who's gone through the BCBA program on any level in our departments that hasn't been able to get a job pretty much right off the bat or already had a job and they were getting the BCBA as part of that. So uh, on the doctoral level, our students have gone into higher education positions, um, high level clinical and administrative positions and so on and so forth, and then on the master's level. Um, Our folks are out in the schools, in leadership roles, they're working in private agencies and in administrative roles and so forth. So uh, probably at some point, Aaron, we need to pull together some data (laughs) uh, where where people have ended up, because I think it would be very, we'd be able to show very, uh, an impressive track record of uh, student outcomes in terms of jobs and so forth.
2: Yeah, I think so, too. And I think a real credit for some of the federal grants that you all have gotten uh, in the special ed department, because those have really attracted some some great scholars. It's nice and we can really provide a really substantive assistantship for their training.
0: Well, and so we've we've covered a lot of stuff and this is your time to brag. So Rob, don't apologize for that. This is this is (laughs) your time. Um, You know, I do want to open it up. You know, is there anything else? that either of you want to say about any of the things that we've talked about today or anything that you may have missed? I don't think
2: so. Maybe just, you know, inviting folks to come and visit, come check out Salt Lake City, come see the University of Utah. If you like to ski, come in winter. And if you don't like to ski, come in fall or spring. And um, yeah, we just, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us today and learn about our program and what the training looks like for folks who want to
1: pursue the BCBA here. And we, we typically have at least a few people present. For example, I think Aaron and I will both be in Boston for ABAI and so we'll be doing an expo poster at the uh, the poster session. So if folks wanna swing by and get more information or talk to us, um, we'll be available at, at, and and if folks wanted to maybe set up a meeting at a different time or something, we'd be open to that as well, so. Um, we typically, uh, and Aaron and company, go to the school site conference and so forth. So I think there's also those opportunities if folks wanted to chat and get more information and so forth.
0: Well, and I've had a really great time learning about the program. I think the intricacies of the program really set, you know, what the University of Utah is doing apart from even some of the other programs that may be, you know, housed in a special education department or in the education department. Um, I think it really sets you, like there's these little intricacies that, you know, set you just apart from that. So it's really exciting to hear that. And thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you. Really appreciate it, Shauna. Thanks, Shauna. It's our pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the University Series. And as always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at operantinnovations at abatechnologies.com.